The Guardian. Do you ever think about the stuff you touch? The way it feels? The textures? The temperatures? Do you ever think about what that stuff might look like as you zoom into it and see what's going on at a molecular level? Today on Science Weekly, we're hearing from somebody who does all those things. Like, yes, I, I understood why metals glow different colours because of um, you know, the electromagnetic radiation that they give off relating to the temperature of those materials. I understood that theoretically, but to witness a blacksmith understand the temperature of their steel purely based on the colour that it's glowing, it brings it alive. From The Guardian, I'm Shivani Dave, and in this episode I'm talking to Dr Anna Pushaisky, a material scientist, channel swimmer and stand-up comedian, about her latest venture, writing her new book, Handmade, a scientist's search for meaning through making. I wanted to start off with understanding a bit more about the material I found the most fascinating in the book, glass, which, as we all know to be solid, actually has the molecular structure of a liquid. Could you tell me a little bit more about that, Anna? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people will have heard of this sort of the rumour that glass is actually a very, very, very viscous liquid. And the evidence that we have for this is very old panes of glass in medieval churches that are ever so slightly thicker at the bottom than they are at the top. And intuitively, we think, well, that must mean that this glass has been flowing down due to gravity over hundreds of years. Therefore, it must be a very, very viscous liquid. Well, there's also a molecular argument for that as well, because if you zoom into glass and, and see where the atoms and molecules are inside, they are a bit of a jumbled up mess. They're very rigidly bonded to each other, so they don't move, but they their structure is what we describe as amorphous. It's very kind of jumbled up. There's, there's no structure or order to it in particular. And that structure is very similar to the structure of a liquid. So if you were to have a look at water and zoom in and see where the atoms and molecules are inside, then they would all be kind of randomly tumbling over each other and in in no particular order as well. So the structure of glass and the structure of water as a liquid is very, very similar. Now, this is in contrast to what we describe in material science as um, as crystalline materials. And ice is a good example of a crystalline material. When water freezes, all of the molecules line up in really neat rows and columns in a kind of 3D structural lattice. That It's very predictable, it's very ordered, it's very beautiful. And that's how we describe the atoms inside materials that are crystalline. So ice is a good example. Lots of metals are crystalline as well. When you heat ice up from below zero degrees to zero degrees Celsius, as we know, the ice melts. And it melts at that very distinct melting temperature because its molecules are in this very distinct crystalline ordered structure. So zero degrees is enough energy to break all of those bonds between those molecules and allow them to slosh over each other. Um, And when they do that, then the material becomes a liquid. With glass, that's not true. There is no one distinct temperature which can break all of those bonds between the molecules to turn the material from a solid to a liquid. Instead, what happens is the bonds break very gradually over a course of a few hundred degrees, so that when a glass blower is heating their glass, it goes from being a rigid solid-like material to becoming gradually more and more liquid-like, and and it goes from being very viscous, very sort of um, slow-moving, to becoming more runny. That that contrast between 
you know, a material that can melt very quickly and one which has what we call this glass transition, this slow glass transition, um, is, is intuitive to makers and um, is known by material scientists as this, you know, physical phenomenon. But it was amazing to be able to experience that myself un- under my hands, in my hands, when I tried glass blowing for the book. So just briefly to return to that question about the medieval church glass, actually, although the structure of glass is a bit like a liquid, and although the glass looks as if it has flowed down downwards over the course of a few centuries, what we know now is that these medieval glaziers used a process called the crown glass process, where they would melt a, a bubble of glass and they would spin it into a disc. And that centrifugal force of spinning made the glass panes ever so slightly thicker at one side than the other. Now, if you're going to mount a piece of glass into a window, what you would intuitively do is to put the slightly thicker bit at the bottom so that the glass isn't top heavy and won't sort of tumble out of the pane um, onto any of this, you know, congregation inside the church. So that's the real reason as to why the glass is slightly thicker at the bottom than it is at the top. That's so interesting. And as you were saying that, I was looking at the glass in my windows of my home office and it's quite difficult to imagine that a glass blower would blow a pane of glass like that. So I'm assuming there's a different process. Yes, exactly. We don't use the crown glass process anymore. Um, It was actually a a British inventor called Alexander Pilkington in 1959, I think, who invented the float glass process, which is an impossibly elaborate and just it, this process blows my mind when I think about it. But his float glass process involves melting a bath of tin metal and um, floating molten glass on top of it. Now, because of the surface tension between the molten tin and the molten glass underneath the glass pane, and because of the surface tension between the glass and the air on the top of the glass pane, the glass floating on top is completely flat. And this process is actually a continuous process. So not only do they float molten glass on top of molten tin and then cool it so that only the glass solidifies and can be removed, they also do this in a continuous process so that there's this huge long river of molten tin and a river of molten and then solidified glass on top. That's so fascinating. I have already got a completely newfound respect for the windows in my (laughs) home office and I suppose you have that feeling a lot of the time when you're learning about a new type of material. What was it about material science that drew you to the field? So funnily enough I was never drawn to material science as a field. When I was at school I applied to university to study physics uh, because I was good at maths, I liked maths um, and to me physics was a bit more of a real world application of maths. And then in the year that I applied, it just so happened that one of the unis that I applied to, their Department of Material Science was really low on applicants. So they invited the physics applicants to interview for both subjects. So I decided to take them up on that offer. You know, it was like a kind of free surprise shot at getting in. Um, And as luck would have it, I got offered a place for material science instead of physics. So off I went without really knowing anything about it at all. And it turned out that actually material science was even more rooted in kind of real world engineering applications than physics was and so I remember in our undergraduate labs we were given uh, a lawnmower and told to dismantle it and work out what all the different components were made out of and why those materials were chosen so it was really had this lovely mix of 
the quite hardcore science, you know, we still did quantum mechanics and all that good stuff, but there was also quite a lot of engineering as well. So for me, it was a great balance. What are you spending most of your time doing? Still dismantling lawnmowers? <laughs> no, the lawnmowers are safe at the moment. Um, so now I kind of identify as a bit more of a materials generalist. Um, I did do a PhD in hydrogen storage materials, you know, a very specific type of um, materials research. But now I'm far more interested in all materials, really, kind of the whole spectrum and how they interact with our everyday lives. And that was what I wanted to write about with this book. About four years ago, I kind of had this realisation that although I knew all these theories and formulae about materials, I didn't really know anything about how they how they are in the real world and how we can how makers transform materials into everyday objects. And when they do that, they they put unfamiliar materials properties onto those objects. In the book, I use the example of, you know, transforming everyday porcelain into something sophisticated like a teacup. Well, we don't have a formula in material science for sophistication, but the people that, that do understand that transformation are the artists and the craftspeople. So I didn't want to rely on the reader's inherent interest in, you know, what is it about the atoms in steel that make it hard and strong? To me, that's interesting because I've been trained in it and, and I have that kind of academic appreciation. But for, for most people, that's not actually that interesting. What's interesting is, you know, how a blacksmith uses that to um, manipulate the steel and make useful objects that we are familiar with in our everyday lives. So I really wanted to centre these human stories and then hook the science onto that. In the book, you were so upfront about not knowing things, whether that was a very niche and specific question an audience member would ask you as you were doing a set about material science, or whether it was when you were trying your hand at making with a material for the first time. How did you feel as that perceived power dynamic shifted from scientist and expert to novice? That was That's a really important distinction, actually, and something that I'm really proud of with the book is that I have changed the positioning of myself as the expert, as the writer. So the vast majority of popular science books that I've read have been written from the perspective of, I'm the expert professor, and I'm going to give you, the readers, the, the lesser experts, my knowledge. With this book, what I wanted to do was to say, you know, reader, I know nothing about carving wooden spoons either. I've never done blacksmithing. I don't know about this stuff. So let's go together. So I'm, I'm putting myself round the side of the reader and saying, let's, let's learn this together. Come with me on this journey and let's, let's discover all this stuff. So I really wanted to not put myself in the position of, you know, professorial expert that was just bestowing my knowledge. But there is a bit of that. You know, I do bring in my expertise in material science, but the story of it is come on this journey. This was the crisis that I had at the start. Let's see what we can find out together. And that was really important to me. And I think it comes across really well. And, you know, you are still the expert. You are still an expert. How has the book now sort of changed the way you look and think about materials and the way they work? Through getting my hands on these 10 different materials and having a go, I've started to appreciate the thought processes behind making and crafting, which I didn't have before. And of all of the crafts that I tried in the book, I've taken knitting forward as the one that I 
kind of continue quite regularly. So in that sense, I guess I do now identify as a crafter. Um, but it's definitely changed the way that I think about materials because previously you know it was all very much theoretical all very much on paper like yes I I understood why metals glow different colors because of um you know the electromagnetic radiation that they give off relating to the temperature of those materials I understood that theoretically but to witness a blacksmith understand the temperature of their steel purely based on the color that it's glowing it brings it alive and it's very, I think, it was very humbling to me as a scientist to witness this expertise um, kind of firsthand and really appreciate that my knowledge was just one piece of this puzzle. And actually, there's a whole host of um, different ways of thinking and different approaches to materials that are held by these craftspeople. And getting to try all of these crafts from people who are experts in their craft and looking at these materials in a new way, was there anything shocking or really, really interesting that got you thinking about about it in a different way that you weren't expecting? Did you get to learn anything new that you weren't expecting? I think probably the most surprising make that we did in the book was in the sugar chapter with sugar expert Ellie Doney. I was very familiar with, you know, using sugar and making with sugar in terms of, you know, baking cakes at home and stuff. But the experiment that we did was called the sugar snake, where you you effectively burn sugar with bicarbonate of soda and what it does is it turns you pile them up together in a little kind of white crystalline pile and you set fire to it underneath and what it does is it burns those two substances together and create this grotesque like blackened wizened sort of snake-like structure um that kind of grows and grows and grows and then when we did it it sort of fell over and then was sort of curling across the table a really kind of shocking but amusing but <laughs> weird manifestation of the the carbon that is inside sugars um so that was that was a fun experiment to do because it really revealed this kind of duality of sugar how you know it can be so associated with sort of sweetness and good things and you know cake is delicious and and it's fun and it's um addictive and and all and delicious and all these things um but it also has this quite sort of sinister dark side as well in the book I write briefly about you know sugar's legacy as a material that really drove the transatlantic slave trade um and then then directly financed a lot of the industrial revolution um a lot of the materials involved in the industrial revolution later um so it all it all kind of ties in but this duality of sugar I thought was a really fascinating insight and that experiment really exemplified that perfectly. I guess it's probably important to point out that that's not an experiment you want to try in the kitchen. <laughs> well, you could. No, I shouldn't be encouraging people to do that. Um, <laughs> no, have, have a look online though. It's quite cool. The book is packed full of fun experiments just like that and funny jokes and stories that really bring the reader along this journey with you. But at the same time, it's extremely autobiographical. How did it feel to intersect all of those aspects of your identity while you were writing it? To me, it was very natural to do it that way. I wanted to kind of demystify scientists as humans. But I also think that that approach stemmed somewhat from a feeling of imposter syndrome almost. 
you know, I'd gone through my career, um, I'd learned all of this stuff, I was supposedly this expert. When I was thinking about what this book might look like, the thing that I really didn't want was to be viewed as this expert giving my knowledge to the people. What I wanted to do was to tell human stories and so it made sense to do it autobiographically. From a personal perspective, I also really loved writing the chapter on plastics, which is the story of my Polish granddad, George, because that involved me getting to read his memoirs and kind of reconnecting with him and making, learning new stuff about him and making connections that I wasn't previously aware of and linking in his life story with the story of plastics. By writing autobiographically, no one could correct me. <laughs> no one could say, oh, that's not true. You got that wrong because those were all my own experiences. So in a way, it stemmed a little bit from, yeah, from uh, from imposter syndrome. But it was also a way of bringing the human side into it as well. Thanks to Dr. Anna Pajajski. You can find a link to her book, Handmade, on the podcast's webpage, along with the latest material science reporting from The Guardian. If you have any programme ideas, thoughts or feedback, please get in touch at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. There'll be another episode later this week, but for me, for now, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts.